Good morning, everyone. So good to see you this morning. And I have so looked forward to getting to this text in particular uh, this morning. So would you open your Bibles to Revelation 22? We're going to study verses 1 through 5 this morning. The title of the message, as you can see in your notes, is We Will See His Face. I get choked up just saying, saying that. We have looked in chapter 21, and the Lord has showed us what the new heaven and new earth will look like as a place. And then we looked at what the new heaven and new earth will be like for us as people, what we'll be like as people. But this morning is the best news of all, because we're going to study about a joyful face-to-face encounter that we're going to have with a person. So this is going to be a great place to be. And I'm so thankful for the kind of people we will have become. But nothing is better than the person we're going to behold. So would you stand with me as we read this sacred text and this wonderful promise that is not only intended to give us hope for a joyful future, but to affect our here and now as well. So hear the word of the Lord, Revelation 22, beginning in verse one. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Oh, holy God. Thank you for this vision. Thank you for what it meant to its first audience, the seven churches of Asia Minor, in all of their distress, in all of the persecution that they were facing and about to face in even worse measure, in all the temptations they had to turn to idols. We thank you that the end of the story is that for all who've trusted in you as Lord and Savior, we will see your face. And that makes all the difference in the world. And may it mean to us today what it meant to them then. Please, Lord, please let this word have a transforming effect 
on our character and upon our hope and upon our faithfulness to live for you until that day. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know what your prayer life is like. I don't know if you have some kind of prayers and all the prayers that you pray. If you have some prayers you go back to and and tend to find yourself repeating. Boy, there's one that I'm praying a lot more these days. There's just lots of changes going on in really all of our lives, all of the time. And I don't know about you, sometimes I think I'm praying, but I'm really whining. (laughs) Um, And when the Lord kind of gives me a, kind of helps me get a grip on things and change my whining into prayer, I've been praying something to this effect. Lord, please use all the changes you are making in my life to change me. I don't always do very well with changes. I don't know about you. I think when changes happen, I try to just kind of, I don't know, I don't know what my deal is. I, I don't know if I want to try to, wait, Lord, I want to keep some sense of normal. This, all these changes, the changes feel like a problem sometimes, don't they? They feel like, man, these changes just seem odd. They're uncomfortable. Can I just have normal, Lord? Somebody told me yesterday about a t-shirt they saw that says, forget a return to normal expect the return of Christ. (laughs) Something like that. I thought that was so good. I just thought that was so good. But Lord, please use the changes you're making in my life to change me. One of the ways he's answering that prayer is by using my defeats and my discouragement and my discontentment to actually grow my longing for heaven. And more specifically, to grow my longing to see his face. Jane had the week off last week uh, from teaching at, at Midland Classical. So we made a fast trip to Dallas to see the kids and grandkids. Wonderful experience. It was a happy time and a sad time. <laughs> Let me explain. We've learned that when 2023 rolls around, our son Micah and his wife Marissa and their daughter, our grandgirl, Adeline, will no longer live in Texas. Can you imagine that? Someone would not live in Texas. I just can't believe that. Um, but they're going to be moving to where his new job will assign them. And therein was my battle. We got to spend some wonderfully happy time with Marissa and Adeline in Dallas. But as I looked at their precious faces, I could not help but be saddened at the thought of seeing them less in the future than we do currently. Have you ever experienced that? Have you, have you ever, or, and you can tell me at the end of the service, Billy, it's just you that is wacko. But I, I, let me just ask you, have you ever in one event been both happy and sad? Content, but discontent? Delighted and discouraged? <laughs> um, the real struggle for me is to not allow the sadness and discontentment and discouragement to carry more weight than the happiness. It just seems like, man, there's this happy thing going on. But, but the, the dread of the change, of the, the, it's like the shadow can loom over the happiness. Oh, it's a mess. I'm a mess. 
I often lose the battle. I, I often battle those same things when the boys were young. And it was just that thing about this is such a great time of life when they're little. This is the best time. This is the, how could anything be better than this? And, and I, would, I would grieve a little bit of their growing older. I was sad that they couldn't stay little. It felt like a defeat. Have you ever felt like that? It's like, this is, this is a, there's good things happening, but I guess I don't want them to end. And somehow the end seems like it's gonna, there's just something wrong with that. It seems like there's, it feels like a defeat for me. It feels like a problem I have to solve. It feels like the answer would be to try to eliminate the sadness and try to keep the happiness flowing. Have you ever been there? It's just like, I, I just, that's, how can I solve the problem of an end of happiness? More happiness, right? just, It just seems like that. Because after all, isn't life supposed to be perpetually happy? And if not, it's not worth living. And don't I now sound like a five-year-old? I mean, isn't that, I'm bored. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I mean, really what I'm describing to you is the need for maturity, isn't it? After our study in Ecclesiastes a few years ago, I've been trying to learn that Christians should be the happiest people on earth, not because happy moments on earth are permanent or all satisfying, but because we are learning how to steward happiness. You ever had that thought? Lord, of all the things that I need to steward, we think of money. I need to steward my money. I need to be steward of my health. Have you ever thought of stewarding your happiness? And how about this? Have you ever thought of stewarding your sadness? Being a good steward of both happiness and sadness and not allowing happiness to actually become an idol. We gratefully are to receive and squeeze every bit of God's grace out of those moments, those moments of happiness, and then recognize they're not to be permanent on this side of heaven. And so we're, here's what we're going to do. We're going to lay them down at the Lord's feet in gratitude and humility and worship and praise and surrender and faith knowing that we were never intended to experience per permanent happiness this side of heaven. In fact, I'm learning that it's actually God's plan. Listen to this and test this by scripture because I think prosperity gospel has really messed us up more than we realize. I think it's actually God's plan to allow us to feel sadness that comes at the end of happy times. I think it's actually God's plan to allow discomfort into our normally comfortable lives. I think it's God's plan to allow us to be discontent and discouraged after times of contentment and delight. Why? Why would that be? Good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because the sadness and discontentment and discouragement are supposed to fuel our desire for something greater and something permanent. And not just to grab hold of another temporary experience of happiness. It's supposed to fuel our desire for heaven. And are you following me? Are you with me? You want me to go back to the beginning? 
<laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you said no. Um, here, let's let C.S. Lewis come to my rescue here and try to describe this. Um, it's in your notes. This is from his book, Mere Christianity. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it. But listen, this is so good. But to only arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do so the same. And so, oh, that's so good. That's so good. But I think the best way to fuel our desire for heaven is to meditate on what God's word says about it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to spend time meditating on what it will be like to see Christ face to face. So the main point, hopefully, is, is a simple one and hopefully a memorable one. And hopefully it's the point of the text. The stronger our faith is to see Christ's face on that day, the stronger our faith will be to face trials and temptations today. And I just don't know how many times we, when we're facing trials and temptations, I don't know that our go-to response is, I need to meditate about that day. I'm, I'm, I'm so focused on this day and solving the problems of this day and never seeming like I have enough faith for this day. And the Lord is calling us today. I want you to look at that day. And I want you to think about the pleasure and joy and delight of seeing his face on that day because of the blood he shed back on Calvary's day and let that build your faith for the trials and temptations we face today. So let's, let's, let's dig this out. Let's, let's, let's go to the text. So point one, just two points this morning. Point one is looking back to a better future. Looking back to a better future. And that's in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3. I think it'd be helpful at this point to just see an overview of the entire Bible. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we see life as God designed it to be. In a garden paradise populated by two people without the curse of, or stain of sin. 
Then beginning in chapter 3, we see what sin did to mankind's relationship with God and with each other. And so, I don't know if you want to write this little fun fact down. For the next 1,185 chapters, we learn about God's plan and promise to rescue people from sin and its curse through a wounded conqueror, a triumphant sacrificial lamb. And then we get to the last two chapters of the Bible, which show us what life will one day be like again forever, free from the curse of sin in a garden city populated by believing people from every ethnicity on earth. Just four chapters in the Bible have no, no, no hint or stain of sin. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Everything in between is about God's unstoppable plan and covenant-keeping promise to rescue his people from the judgment their sins deserve. And he has done it in Jesus. And I'm so glad. I am so glad. And that's why the scripture takes us back in these verses, back to the Garden of Eden to remind us of the paradise that was lost and the paradise that would not merely be restored, but be an even better future, an eternal future, an eternally better paradise. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the metaphor of a city that's now being described as a garden. And this renewed garden is of such great glory and majesty that Eden just pales in comparison to it. And in fact... We are really learning, when we, when we take that bird's eye view of the scriptures and, and the 1,185 verses between chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, when we take that bird's eye view, what we're actually seeing in is, is in God's brilliance. He's actually intending for us to see foreshadowing of the eternal future that we have in, in those first two chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. It's his plan to give us something better. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And that's where we're going to go with this this morning. So we're going to see a river that points back to Genesis 2, 1 and, uh, verse 10. A river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. After sin entered the world, God promised that there would one day be a better river a better river that would flow, that would give transforming and everlasting life to all who would drink from it. Joshua, thanks for including in our singing tonight this thought of thirsting and this thought of living water. I didn't ask Joshua. That's just the Holy Spirit. That's just so good. I'm so thankful for our worship leaders. They really take serious the text. When they prepare, they're in the text and they're asking God, Lord, how can we sing in ways that connect our hearts to, the, to your glory, certainly, and to intimacy with you, but coming rooted, rooted, rooted in the scriptures. Lift up prayers of gratitude for our worship leaders, our entire worship team. Well, in Ezekiel 47, so remember, so sin comes into the world, and so that river is polluted. So in Ezekiel 47, God gave a vision 
of a river coming from the temple that would grow increasingly deeper and be so pure and powerful that when it hit the Dead Sea, it would restore life to it. That's this vision of this future river that is going to be so pure, it's going to, it's going to bring life to the Dead Sea. I've never been there. I've always wished I could sometime, maybe sometime go. But, it, but it, from what everyone says, it's just, it's dead. It's just dead. It cannot sustain life. And this river is going to be so powerful that it's going to bring life to the Dead Sea. Psalm 46.4 tells us it's not just life-giving. There's a joy about it. Psalm 46.4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And the river of life, it says in Ezekiel, this, this river in Ezekiel, is, it says it, it grows increasingly deeper and wider and more powerful to where you actually swim in it. You can't even touch the bottom of it. And here's why. It's because it's not a physical river. It's a river of life that's far deeper and happier than we can imagine because it's called living water. Jesus, Jesus told us about it, didn't he? He himself offered living water to the woman at the well. And he said, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I give him will actually become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He clarifies that even more a little bit later in John. That's from John 4. But then he gets into John 7. And listen to these familiar words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Oh, now we're seeing what that river is all about. Jesus is telling us this life-giving water would actually come through the gift of the Holy Spirit, which now really completes the picture there in the, in the garden. Did you ever, you saw the Father, God and the Lamb, God and the Lamb, God and the Lamb. Did any of you go, where's the Holy Spirit? Oh, there he is. He's the river of life. God wants to wrap us up in this eternal, beautiful fellowship of the Trinity in, in forever and ever and ever. We won't be able to go any place or look anywhere without experiencing life and that abundantly. Let's say amen to that. Amen to that. All this is fulfilled in verse 22, one, when he, when he describes it as the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, which means it's eternal. We can't survive without water just as earthlings here on this old fallen world. And here we learn that we also need really a spiritual hydration too. Even more than we need earthly water, don't we? We need the water that would give eternal life and, and a life that would last forever. That's what you, if, if I were to ask you what you most need this morning, I, I think if you asked me that, I think I would, I would probably go to be able to see my grand girl more often. <laughs> I, am, I think the, the answer is, what do I most need this morning? Eternal life. That's what you most need this morning. If you have that, then don't you have hope and faith that every other need you have, God's going to supply. 
Revelation 22 says this water flows to the middle of the street. The water of life, the perfect fullness of the Spirit is going to be the centerpiece of all we do in eternity. And it's going to be eternally thirst quenching and satisfying. And listen, here's the great news about it. It's so nice of God, so kind of God to give us a little bit of taste of the age to come in this current age we're living in. The power of the age to come has already broken into this world in the gift of salvation. It's a foreshadowing. It's a a promise that he is going to bring us all the way home and that, that, that we can experience contentment and satisfaction this side of heaven that's only going to get richer and more beautiful and more lasting on that side of heaven. The power of the age to come is already broken into our lives through our salvation. He spoke this about the spirit that the believers were to receive, right? That's what we just read. It's why God commands us to be regularly filled and satisfied with the Holy Spirit. And we know from Colossians that to be filled with the spirit is to actually be filled with the word. So again, just heart to heart question and answers, okay? Are you regularly praying to be filled with the spirit? Are you regularly recognizing I'm thirsty? I need, I, need a, I need ongoing communication and intimacy and fellowship with my God. Do you regularly surrender and, and ask the Lord, Lord, I, you know, it's a command. I guess, I guess God has to put it in the form of a command because we are so self-sufficient that we think we can live without regular filling of the Holy Spirit. I, that's how arrogant I am. And so God says, be filled with the Holy Spirit as a command. How about we all as a congregation say, here we are, Lord, fill us again and again and again. And at three o'clock this afternoon, oh, Lord, fill me again and again and again. And Lord, I'm going I'm to dive into your word. Because you describe the, 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 one, the, the one who the word dwells in richly will be just like the one who is filled with the Spirit. They're, they're, it's two sides of the same coin. The tree of life, then he goes into the tree of life, and it points back, uh, the tree of life, and it points us back to in the Garden of Eden is a singular tree. But did you notice? <laughs> this is a different kind of tree in the new heaven and new earth. It's a better tree because it now is being described as a grove of trees on both sides of the river of life. And it doesn't merely just have one fruit. It has 12 different kinds of fruit. What would that be like? What would that be like? You go up to a tree and you're expecting apples and you see 11 other fruits. I mean, that would be awesome. But I don't think the 12 here just means only 12. Are <laughs> we like that? I don't think we would go, oh, cool, 12. And then we'd have a few bites in here. And then finally we'd go, only 12? Yeah, I mean, are we just, we're just so fickle. Um, I don't think the 12 is speaking of only 12. I think it's speaking of completion, fullness, perfect satisfaction. You're never going to grow tired from eating from these trees because the taste of the fruit is only going to get better every time you try them. Think of a better Rosa's. Think of a better Chick-fil-A. I, I don't know what is the deal with those two restaurants. I think there's drugs in the food. Something is there. 
Hi, hi, you want to go Chick-fil-A? Yeah, I went there for breakfast, but I'll go there for lunch. You want to go Chick-fil-A? Yeah, well, I went there for lunch, but I'll have dinner there. What's the deal? Well, the deal is, it's going to be way better in the new heavens and new earth. The taste is never, it's just going to get better and better and better. And it talks about every month, every month. And we know there's not those kind of a time frames in the new heavens and new earth. But what it's speaking of is that the fruit is always going to be in season, which is really good news for you pumpkin spice people. Isn't that going to be good news? You don't have to wait till September. <laughs> pumpkin spice forever. I mean, this is great. Now, the river of life is fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy, but the tree of life is doing the same thing. In Ezekiel 47, 12, it says, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water that flows from the sanctuary their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Healing. What's this thing about healing in heaven? Well, healing is, is really just indicating the complete absence of any kind of physical or spiritual want. It points to abundant provision and perpetual availability of the life of, of God himself. The power and grace to meet every imaginable need. And here's really good news. The tree of life has become available to all because of Christ's death on the cross. I want you to think about this. In the book of Acts, almost every time the cross is mentioned in the book of Acts, it's referred to as a tree. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus took our place on a first tree of judgment so that we could eat forever at a blessed tree of grace. Oh, thank you for the cross. If you ever go back and reread Revelation, and I hope you will again and again, don't ever, don't ever lose sight of the cross in your study of Revelation. It's everywhere you look if we'll just be careful to notice. And the fruit of these trees sustain eternal health for every believer because they sustain unbroken fellowship between God and man. And not only is the relationship between God and man healed, did you also know it talks about the healing of the nations? So also are the broken relationships between God's people. Racism and hatred and unforgiveness and bitterness and self-righteousness and anger and jealousy and covetousness between people and nations will be forever healed. There are countless trees in this new heavens and earth. Why? Because there are countless people there from every ethnicity of the world who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. More good news is this. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night because he will be like a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit in its season and having leaves that will not wither. Do you ever stop to think, how important are your devotions? How important is the preaching of the word in the context and, uh, 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 and the, the intention for which it was inspired? How important is that? Because those who delight in the Bible and meditate on it day and night experience a taste of the tree of life today. 
This is great news for a whiner like me. This is great news for somebody who thinks I'm going to find some kind of good tasting water in a cistern that is broken and cracked and can't even hold any water. This is great news for a sinner like me. You mean I can taste? You mean, Lord, are you serious? Are you really serious? That by feeding on your word and fellowshipping with you and being filled with your spirit regularly, you mean I can go through horrible drought in this world? Horrible drought. Maybe my spouse isn't loving me the way I'd hoped I'd be loved. And it feels like a drought. Maybe my kids just seem like to be on a path of endless rebellion and it feels like a horrible drought. Maybe my job has been put at risk again and again and it just seems to be happening every few years. It seems like there's a drought. But you say that if I feed and delight on your word, I'll be like a tree planted by a stream of water and my leaves won't wither. It'll, it'll be, people will wonder, how is that tree green when everything else is brown? It's because of the water of life. It's because of the word of God. And God has given us these, this, the power of the age to come breaking into our lives today. That's how important your devotions are. That's how important your regularly gathering together as a local church for the preaching of the word is. Because God breaks into this world of drought with water and with food. Amen? Oh, man. And, no, and then verse 3, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed. The curse of physical and spiritual death has been removed. The tears are taken away. But listen, what, what good is it for tears to be taken away if the reason for the tears is not taken away? And this is telling us the reason for the tears is taken away. Everything that was subjected to the curse, material creation, humanity, our bodies, our, our broken relationships, they're going to be eliminated in the new heaven and earth. And in fact, not only is the curse ended, the curse is reversed. And that momentum will continue for eternity. What do you think about that? Remember in uh, Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite lines in that series is after this horrendous battle, Sam is just totally surprised he's alive. And then he looks and he's just as surprised to see Gandalf is alive too. Think about the reversal of the curse. Sam says, is everything sad becoming untrue? Think about that. Everything sad becoming untrue. Verse 3 says, God's servant will worship God and the lamb around the throne. The redeemed will fulfill God's original intent for mankind and all of creation. And that's to bring him glory with every thought and every word and every deed. Every breath. Can you imagine on that day, every breath and word will be worship and every action will be service of him. I look forward to that so much. Worship in the new heaven and the new earth is going to be endlessly fresh. It will never grow old. It's never going to get boring because God is infinitely beautiful. He's infinitely wise and powerful and loving and gracious and merciful and creative and exciting and fascinating. We're never going to plumb the depths of the riches of God's character and grace. 
But here's where I can be so often. Let's see if you have been here too. When we worship on a Sunday or when we have our personal devotions, I can struggle to stay focused for 15 minutes. We sing a few songs and read a few verses and, and maybe think about one or two truths about God. And then we, then we just think we're done. And we move on to other thoughts and desires that focus on more urgent needs. It's almost something like a spiritual ADD, don't you think? But not in the new heaven and new earth. Every moment of every day, we're going to discover something new and exciting about God. Every moment of our life throughout eternity, there's going to be some fresh and previously unknown thing about God that is going to captivate us and overwhelm us. One of the reasons I love and need worship songs that are lyrically rich. Listen, if you're new in our church, one of the things that you'll probably see over just a, a week or two, if not your very first visit here, is we sing really wordy songs. Have you noticed that? I've talked to younger worship leaders and they say, well, you guys, you, the, you sing the lyrics you guys sing is, you know, so awesome. The musicality is just kind of... Musicality, musicality. Sorry for our instrument, our musicians. I'm, musicality's important. Do you know what these wordy songs do for us? They get us to think more deeply about the, the, the God who loves us so greatly. It's a taste of heaven. I mean, haven't you? I mean, it's one thing to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. There's a place for that. Don't, it, I'm, that, that I'm, I include that in my repertoire. But who is Jesus? What has he done for me? What did I deserve? You see, that's where that song falls short, unless I'm attaching that song to lyrically rich thoughts that are giving me a greater reminder of the depth and breadth and length and height and width of God's love for me in Jesus Christ. That's why I love wordy worship. <laughs> and I hope you will grow to love it too if you haven't already. Listen, there's not going to be in heaven this one-time momentary display of God's goodness. Have you ever thought of that first day and you breathe your last breath here, the Lord takes your breath away and, and now your body is left waiting and now to, to, to ashes to ashes, dust to dust, waiting for a resurrection body. Your spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. And is this what, is this what you think is going to happen? Oh, I made it. <laughs> this, is, this is great. This is great. As though making it was the goal. No, the goal was him. The goal is his glory. The goal is becoming like him and worshiping him. Listen, there's not going to be this one-time momentary display of his goodness, but an everlasting, ever-increasing experience of his love and his wisdom and his joy, and it intensifies with every moment. Heaven is not just this awesome moment of excitement followed by an eternity of boredom. Heaven is not going to be a bunch of reruns that we've already seen. There's going to be new shows of divine grace every day. And the knowledge of God, oh, this is, I love this so much. The knowledge of God that we're growing in every day, you know what that's going to result in? A greater love for him. The more I know him, the more I love him. Wasn't there some 50 song? The more I love him. <laughs> 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 
I get a taste of that in my love for Jan. And my, my love for her was just like a loud, bubbly, shallow brook when we first got married. And, and the Lord has just taken it into a deeper river. The more I know her, the more I love her. How much more is it going to be to experience an eternal God of love? And the more I know him, the more I'm going to love him. But we don't have to wait for heaven for that to begin, do we? Isn't that great news? Such great news. Well, the last part is this. Heaven will be heaven because Christ is there. We see that in Revelation 22, 4 and 5. As beautiful as everything we've read, as beautiful as all the symbolism is, heaven would just be a gold-plated hell if Jesus weren't there. Heaven and the absence of Jesus would be hell. But he's there. He's there. Verse 4 says, it's the greatest conclusion to the storyline of the Bible that we could hope for. They who were dead in sin and transgression, who deserved eternal damnation that would be just, because of the blood of the Lamb, will see his face. Everything we've read is only meant to point us to Jesus. Everything we've studied in these last few verses are just expressions of our being in the manifest presence of Christ forever. And why will we see Christ? Well, Jesus answered that in the Beatitudes, didn't he? He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We will see him because we've become pure in heart. Our practical righteousness will be equal to our positional righteousness. We will be fully sanctified. Verse 5 says we're going to have his name written on our foreheads. We're, we're forever his. The high priest the, in, the, in the Old Testament had on his forehead. He was holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord. And that's what God will do. He will transform us. He will give us a character like his, a nature like his. That's why we'll never fall away. Because that's written, inscribed on our foreheads. No more falling away. And best of all, we're going to see his face. Theologians call this promise the beatific vision. You know what that means? This is the greatest thing. You'll write this down. The beatific vision literally means the sight that makes happy. Listen, I don't know what sights make you happy. You Cowboys fans, I know what you're thinking about today. Listen, I got a way better happiness to offer you than those Cowboys that are going to probably win more than them. Let's not get into football. But, is, but think about the things that make us happy. The things we love to look at. The things, this is the sight that makes happy. The face of Jesus Christ. Let's remember that when the eternal Son of God became a human being in Jesus Christ, he became incarnate forever. There will never be a time in eternity future when God the Son isn't incarnate as a man and we will see his face. 
Seeing Jesus is to see God, but it's more than just physical sight. It also means to know him in the depths of who he is and to enjoy him in all of his glory. It's to experience and feel his love for us and to go deeper into intimacy and affection with him than we possibly could imagine in this life. The face of a person really gives expression to who they really are. I I loved my dad's face. My dad is gone on to be with the Lord a long time ago. Oh, how I love to see his face. I, I would look forward to our visits with him just so I could see his face. And that face only became more beautiful as I grew up and he grew older. I'll never forget the face of my mom who the days leading up to her death, she could no longer speak. And when I, when I said my last goodbye to her, she couldn't say anything but her eyes and her smile and her countenance said, I love you. Oh, how I love to look into Jan's beautiful face, my kids' precious faces, the treasure of my grandkids' face. And I know you think I am so weird. Visitors, listen, what I'm about to tell you, you are free to just run. Sometimes I'll come up to you and, Marino, can you help me? Could you come up for a minute? because I probably have done this to you. I'll come up to you and it's, not, it's just not enough. I just don't like, this is not enough for me, you know? Oh, a radio. I know, I know, I'm, not, I'm just, okay, you, I'm not saying you have to do this, but this is what this is, let me just, just hear this out. And, and often I will say, it's so good to see your face. Have you ever heard? I, I, I try to say that regularly, and here's why. One, it's because I dearly love you, and I dearly love you as a church family. I love you like crazy, and I love you, my dear brother. And so I just, oh, it's so good to see your wonderful face. And you know why? Because in seeing your face, I get a glimpse of the face of my Savior. And I love you for who you are, but I love you for who you represent. And you guys so regularly represent Jesus to me. So listen, like I said, if you're visiting today, you can stiff arm me. If I'm coming up to you like this, you know, you can stiff arm me, okay? And I'll, I'll, I'll get the message and I will never touch your face again. Um, but that's why I do it. Thank you, buddy. I love you. Oh, I love you. It's wonderful to see your faces because it points me to the day when I'm gonna see the face of the one who made all of this possible, all of this grace possible. We're gonna see his face. And I hope hope he'll let me do that. It's so wonderful to see your face. It's so wonderful to see his face. And his face is only going to get more beautiful throughout eternity. There will be no place we will go in the new heaven and earth where his face is not shining upon us. I mean, maybe take back to your childhood. I, I was a baseball player, and I, I just, my dad was at every game that I can remember. And I was a third baseman, and so time to go out, take the field, and I'd go out, and I'd take my place at third. I'd get, you know, start warming up, getting the ground ball, throwing it back. And then I'd always look in the stands to see the face of my dad. And he was always watching me. And when I made a good play, he was watching me. 
And when I made a bad play, he left. No, he didn't leave. And when I made a bad, when I made a bad play, you know what? His, just his face was just going, no change here, son. Love you to pieces. No change. You might have made a, you, you really made a bad error there, but no change with love. No change with love. You need to work on your fielding. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine in the new heavens and new earth? We won't, we won't be able to look anywhere. There's his face. <laughs> That's his face. And this is why numbers so, so again, now you're getting some, some like, you're, you're, you're getting all my secrets. Why I so often use the ironic blessing at the end of service. It's in your notes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That will be an eternal benediction on the day we see him face to face. It's pretty good news, isn't it? It's pretty good news. See, that's the purpose and goal of all human history. God's glory and face shining upon us in delight and forgiveness and joy and love, all because the work of redemption is done. Now, now we're fully sanctified. Our bodies want to worship and serve him. There's no longer the war between the flesh and the spirit. First John puts it this way, and it's in your notes. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will we, we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as... <sighs> we shall see him as he is. You mean a sinner can look into the face of God and live? Yes. A sinner who's been saved by grace through the blood of the Lamb will see him as he is. And that means it's not only going to be a beautiful face, it's going to be an eternally transforming face. You see what it says there? We will become like him. And then John 5, it closes and he repeats that there's not going to be any night or darkness of sin or sorrow and death and Satan, all those dark shadows will be taken away. No need for light because we're going to be in the presence of the one true light <laughs> and we'll reign forever in this garden city and be his image bearers in perfection for eternity. So just a couple questions. If Jesus is the best part of heaven, Shouldn't Jesus be the best part of our life now? And if he's not, what's getting in the way? Essentially what we're doing, if Jesus isn't the best part of your life now, you are looking, you, you're having a substitute savior. If there's something else you think you need more than the eternal life and love and plan of Christ for you, the Lord wants to touch your heart with his love today and get your priorities reshifted. Are you being regularly filled with the living water of the Holy Spirit to, to experience that Jesus is better today? Are you experiencing a taste of the tree of life by delighting in God's word and discovering in his sustaining life? Even when you're experiencing the drought of satanic attack or the sins of others against you or your own battle with sin, you have a life that the world cannot take away. God's promised that as you feed upon him, your leaves won't wither. I 
we saw a moment ago in 1 John 3, that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. And Listen, precious ones, I just want to encourage a discipline that maybe you will carry out of here. It's a discipline of grace. It doesn't earn us anything, but it's a, a way God feeds us and supplies our need. That the most practical and purifying thing you can do in this life is to set your hearts and minds and affection upon seeing Christ in the next life. In the new heaven and the new earth. Because the possession of such hope, it's the strongest possible power and strength God will give you to live a purer life day by day today. Let's, we started with C.S. Lewis. Let's end with C.S. Lewis. You gotta love how he ends the Chronicles of Narnia and the book, The Last Battle. So here he is. Aslan is speaking and as and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. Oh, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and you gotta love this, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Joshua, would you bring the team up this morning? So let's go back to that prayer that I said I was praying, and maybe, it's, maybe it could be a helpful prayer for you too. Lord, please use the changes that you're bringing into my life to change me. Lord, would you please use the ending of happiness and, and times where I'm sad and times when I'm discontent, times that I'm discouraged, would you actually use those times to redirect my focus on seeing the face of Jesus? Would you actually use these things as fuel for the fire of hungering and thirsting after heaven? longing for heaven, longing to see your face. God, would you help me not to try to fix the problem with an ending of happiness with more happiness? Would you help me turn my eyes upon Jesus? <laughs> that song makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you stand?